This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. start a series on uh, transforming grace. We're going to look at the, the, the nature of the grace of God. Now, if you're not familiar with, with the word grace, it, you, you can tend to think, oh, it's something that you say uh, at the start of meals. You don't really have an idea what it is. Uh, but, but grace is God's unmerited favor towards you. So it, it's definitely unmerited. It's not something that's earned. It's God's love towards you, even though you don't deserve it. And it's absolutely critical that we understand what that is. Because if, if we don't understand what that is, then what happens is we get into all sorts of funny shapes, particularly uh, one of the funny shapes that churches have gotten over the years. One of the funny shapes we get into is, is, is legalism, where we're trying to do keep rules to earn God's approval. The other way we can slip is to think, oh, well, God loves me anyway. I can just do what I want. That's called license. And basically, we want to, to walk as a church between those two things. We don't want to think, oh, it's all about rules and I've got to earn my, my God's favor. Or God doesn't really mind what I do. Uh, I can just do what I want. We need to walk through the middle of that. And so we just felt as a church and I felt as, uh, as, we felt as a leadership team as talking to some of you that actually it might be really good for you to have a refresher on that. And we've talked about some of these things. So some of the sermons we're going to have interspersed over the next couple of months, you might have thought, well, I've heard that one. But actually, it's good to hear it again. So let me just ask you the question. Have you met, ever, ever met anyone who's famous? I, I haven't really met many famous people. I've I met this guy, Peter Gabriel. It, it, it's, this, this illustration is really running thin now. Anybody heard of the rock band Genesis? About four of you. Great. I met this guy, Peter Gabriel. I met him. I played squash uh, with a very rich friend of mine at a very nice health club in, in Bath. I had beaten him uh, because I always used to beat him and he always used to pay, which felt like a great arrangement at the time. And I'm taking a shower. Just don't go there. I was taking a shower and, and sort of two next to me, I thought, I sort of recognise you and I was trying not, to, trying not to look and I thought... So anyway, when we're back in the main room and he's getting dry in the locker room, I thought, you're Peter Gabriel from the rock band Genesis. Crazy thing is I had to rush off and my friend stayed, and then Peter Gabriel said, oh, we're trialling this new album, it's got, uh, would you like to come? There's about 12 of us, we're going to just kind of do a full set for you up at my place in Bath, and obviously I missed that. But anyway, I did see Peter Gabriel in my boxer shorts. So I would have rather seen him in a different kind of context, listen to his rock band. But what if you, want, if you were to meet God, if you were to meet God, you would absolutely want to meet God at your best. I mean, it's, I think the Queen thinks that the whole country smells of fresh paint. And, and I don't know what you'd say. I mean, they, they do, the Queen does say that if you, you know, the, the royal family do say that people just, actually I won't use the word they say, absolutely really 
poo themselves when they meet the Queen. They're like, oh my word. And you just don't know what to say. And I guess you'd want to kind of leverage into the conversation all the best stuff. Like, I'm a great citizen, you know. I do a mums and toddlers group in Bishop's Cleave, you know, whatever. And you'd want to leverage that in. But what if you met God? I don't know what you'd think. Okay, I'm gonna, you're going to meet God and um, this is what you're going to say. So why don't you turn to the person next to you and say, if I met God, this is what I'd say about myself. I'd introduce myself. What would you say? You'd probably want to say something like this. I do go to church every week, uh, well, most weeks, well, I'm, definitely when I'm on the serving road, so I do, I do come each week, and, and, and I do give my money uh, to the church, you know, I do buy the standing order, so I know it looks, doesn't look like I'm putting anything in the bucket, but I do, you know, you'd want to kind of leverage your best stuff, wouldn't you? But what if you met God at your most vulnerable moment? And this story we're going to read is this, a woman meets God at her most humiliating and, and, and shameful moment, a moment that she definitely didn't want to meet God, that where she least of all wanted to meet God, and, and that is uh, a, the story of a woman in uh, John 8. My uh, title is Amazing Grace, A Woman Not For Stoning. And I love this because it introduces all the actors in the, in the story of grace. So we've got the religious people who love their rules and are always finger-pointing, you might be some of those. It's got a woman who's, uh, and there would have been a bloke as well, but we'll come to that, uh, doing whatever she feels that she can do. And you've got Jesus, and you've got those kind of things. You've got the forces of condemnation and judgment, finger pointing. You've got the, the forces of love and forgiveness and grace. You've got rules and religion. You've got Jesus. You've got all those kind of things into the mix. So although it's kind of not a little teaching about, kind of here's some ideas about grace, it's a really powerful story, and I hope you're going to love it. Okay, let's read John 8, uh, verse 1 to 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared... Uh, again in the temple courts where all the people gathered round him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this as a question, as a trap, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is not the sort of story you expect, is it? In fact, I think it's so potent. If 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 you've got a Bible, it says this is not in some manuscripts. I think it's almost like this is an explosive story. I believe it's a true story about Jesus. An explosive story, and they almost thought it's too scandalous to put in the Bible. Surely God doesn't do this. This is not, and it's so shocking, but I think that as we look at it, we'll find like, Jesus, your grace is truly amazing. Father, let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for this story. Thank you that it's recorded for us. I thank you that it's shocking, but so beautiful. 
so powerful in exposing some of the motives of our hearts and some of the finger-pointing, stone-throwing things in our hearts. But Jesus, we thank you that it shows the amazing love and grace in your heart to forgive and to transform and to change. So we pray, transform us as we hear it, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's get the first people in the, uh, the group. The religious people, they're the first people. And the, the religious people, as I've said, they think the way to find favour with God is to keep the rules. Uh, and and, and that it's actually, that's a key thing. So it's interesting, if I play golf with people, uh, uh, one of the things that they say is, if they swear, I mean, golf does make you swear. Uh, it's that kind of game, if you play, it does make you swear. I know you might be shocked if you don't play, but it does make you swear. It's very frustrating. Uh, but um, one of the things that people, as they play golf with me, they say, oh, I better not swear. Or if I say to them, uh, not, not you, Mark. <laughs> now, I've played golf with some other people when I first introduced myself, and they'd say, oh, what do you do? And I'd tell them what they do and say, oh, I better not swear. Because they've got this idea that, well, if you're a Christian, then not swearing is like right up at the top of the list. Yeah? Do you, do you get that? People say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. You better not swear. Or, or, the, and, and, or people might say to you, are, are you religious? Do, does anybody ever say that to you? To say, oh, you go to church, are you religious? Yeah. What do you answer at that point? You say no, don't you? Well, they go, what? What, do you go to church? You must be religious. There must be this group of people that go to church. They must be religious because we must be all about rules. And it's all about kind of, well, and people say, I don't really want to go to church because, you know, Jesus might stop me doing some of the things I'd like to do because it's all about the rules. There's loads of rules and we better keep the rules. And the way that you teach your kids to behave is there's loads of rules. And the way you grow up, you think there's loads of rules. And it's all about you better do this and you better do that and you better do the other. And although we might not say consciously that, that, is, uh, that, that that's what, the, what church is like, the bottom line is we can be like that. I know if I've had a great week and, I, and, I, and I've kind of read my Bible and I've prayed it every day and you know, I haven't missed and I haven't fallen out with my wife or you know, I haven't been grumpy when I've come to the setup on Sunday morning or any of those things that you notice, you know, <laughs> I can think, man, I'm doing great. Jesus really must love me this week. Or if you've had a bad week or you've messed up, you may think, oh dear, Jesus doesn't love me because I'm valued because of my religious performance. Do you relate to that at all? Or maybe you don't. Maybe you're all kind of like, no, I live in the grace of God. I feel continually loved. It's never a problem. But I know for a lot of you, you can think, I'm doing well or I'm doing poorly. And the danger about rule keeping is it, it, turns you in, it does tend to, can turn you into a hypocrite because what happens is you think, I better hide the fact that I've had a row with my wife. I'll better hide the fact I've had a difficult day. I'll better hide that. So it's like, how's, how are you? Fine, fine, fine. Church, yeah, fine, I'm fine, I'm great, great. Everything's great, great. And that's what you do, isn't it? You come, you go to church, everything's fine, you go, it's fine. Because you think, well, I better just put the mask on because I better not let anybody know that actually I'm broken and messed up like everybody else. And so we can become these finger-pointing hypocrites. And the myth is that God belongs to the religious types. The myth is that, that, that God belongs to those religious types and when God came to the earth as a man, Jesus Christ, that actually the religious types, you'd expect them to be delighted. Finally, the guy that wrote the book is here. It, isn't it brilliant? The word became flesh because, you know, he never broke a rule. Jesus fulfilled every law. He never broke a rule. There's no hypocrisy, no pride, no lust, no greed, no taking, no unfaithfulness, no deceit. And Jesus never broke a rule, but the religious people hated him. That has got to be a shock. If you read the Bible, 
That's got to be a shock. If you read the Bible for the first time, that's got to be a shock. Why do the religious people hate Jesus? Let me put it this way for you. Um, I don't know if anybody... Most of our money is digital these days. No one actually has any real money. But imagine you had money kind of stuffed under your mattress like your kind of granny used to do. I don't know if I don't, anybody do that. Maybe somebody ever did. But imagine you had lots of money and it was kind of in note form. And then what happened is one day the government says, all the notes that are out there, we, we're scrapping them. We're going to have a new, new notes. The notes are suddenly worthless. In fact, they did that in India about six months ago. There's a big high-value note in India that had actually become associated with, with, uh, with, uh, with organized crime. And what they did is overnight they said, that note, you can't, help, you can't spend it in the shops anymore. You've got to bring it to the bank. And obviously when the criminals don't want to come to the bank and say, this is how I got my money. So it was like a way of saying, we're going to change the currency. And I think what was happening in Jesus' day is he's changing the religious currency. Because the religious currency of Jesus' day was, you need to go to the temple, you need to do these sacrifices, you need to pray these prayers, you need to do these things. And it felt like that was the religious currency. And the people that did that felt like they were really rich. They were spiritually rich and spiritually important because they've kind of got the ones who kept all the rules and so they're high at the top of the tree. The Bible calls them the Pharisees. They were at the top of the tree, and if you read about the Pharisees, they always looked down on people that were spiritually poor, that didn't do the things that they did. Oh, look at that person, they did that, they did that. And they're the kind of archetypal religious people, but Jesus is saying, sorry, there's a new currency, it's not about doing all these things, it's about me. I'm the temple you need to come to, I'm the one that really matters, and all the people will go like, whoa, so what you're saying is all this stuff, all this credit that I've earned, this spiritual credit I've earned, you're going to say, suddenly it's now worth worthless and it's a bit this so the people that hated him are the ones who done all these things to build up favor and God and Jesus said it's that's worth that's not worth anything Naomi even prayed it your good works are like filthy rags it's not worth anything who are the ones who are going to love him if people said what we're going to do is we're going to get the pound the pound sterling is now going to be going to go and we're going to have a different currency the people are going to be cross are the ones who've got loads of pound sterling who's going to be happy the ones who got none, or they're in minus. If you've got credit card bills, and they say there's no more sterling, it's all cancelled. Everybody who's massively overdrawn, everybody who's got no money is going to be totally happy. So what happened with Jesus is, though the, the ones who felt they'd built up spiritual credit with God hated him, but the ones who had nothing in their pockets, the spiritually bankrupt, the morally bankrupt, the poor, they loved him. To so understand that, you don't think, well, you can't feel the tension, but if you put it in monetary terms, you can understand why the religious types wanted Jesus dead. We want him dead. Here's a, here's a picture of an angry Pharisee saying, we want you dead. We want him out of the game. And so they thought, how can we get to his weak spot? What's his weak spot? His weak spot is he seems to just let those people that have got no spiritual credit, he seems to let them off. That can't be right. Surely those people have done things that are wrong. We can't just let them off. That is wrong. We need to do something about it. So they get a question together and think, okay, let's ask him a question that puts him between the religious rules, and we find one that's really shocking, and God's love. And we're going to put him in that place. And what's he going to do? Because if he says, well, 
you know, I keep the law of Moses, then obviously all his message to the, to the spiritually broken and poor is suddenly gone. And if he says, oh, well, just doesn't matter, do what you want, he looks like he doesn't care about what's right and wrong. So they put him in a corner. And they don't do a what-if kind of thing, they bring a woman. They bring a woman. So it's not a hypothetical question, what if a woman caught in the act of adultery, what would you do? The, the law of Moses said stone. It's not a what if. They actually get a real woman. And they bring her before Jesus and say, here's a woman caught in the act of adultery. They say, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And they ask him this question. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say about her? Now I think this is a setup. I don't need to develop the story too much, but if I said, okay, now I'd like an illustration, go and find somebody in the act of adultery, off you go, run out now from the temple, go and... You just, you wouldn't be here, would you? I mean, you're all saying, I can't believe you even mentioned that in church. <laughs> you know, but that's what happens is Jesus is teaching in the temple and they say, right, they go out and get a woman. Oh, here she is, just happened to find a woman and a man at it. Let's bring them in. You know, and, and they drag her before Jesus. But it's funny... There's, there's somebody missing in this component. Who? The guy's missing in the component. I, I, I kind of think, well, this feels like a setup. Maybe one of the religious guys, and religious guys can have dark corners. Maybe some religious guy is having an affair, and he said, well, what we can do is we can just, I'll go and get involved with that woman, and then I'll give you the whistle, and you can come and grab her. And then maybe he's, they drag the woman in front, and maybe he's there. Maybe he's there wearing his religious robes and he's there. Maybe he's carrying a stone and saying, oh, it's terrible, isn't it? Terrible. They bring this woman. It's not a hypothetical question. And I think that we need to understand that, that sin will always bring us to our knees. Sin will always bring you to your knees. Uh, you know, uh, in this case, it, it, it's, it's marital unfaithfulness. But whatever sins you do, ultimately, it's never going to satisfy. I had four years where I, I basically backslid whatever. I went away and just sinned. Went away from God and sinned. And I didn't feel happy. It brought me to my knees and thought, this is not as advertised. This is not the pleasure and freedom and fun as advertised. It brings me to my knees. It brings you to your knees. And sin's pleasure will always bring you to your knees. It's never as advertised. This is going to be great, isn't it? Why don't you do this? And then before you know it, you feel miserable and horrible. And that's what's happened with this woman. When God says, don't commit adultery, the world out there thinks actually that God is closing down your options. I know lots of people who say, well, I would believe in Jesus, but... Because we've got this idea, I know it feels like I've, that, that over the months it's been, we've talked about sex, but the reality is, in our society, sex is like the highest level of human fulfillment, human flourishing. The freedom to have sex with who you want is like the highest value. And when people here don't commit adultery, they feel that that is a massive impingement on their rights. Would you agree? Yeah. And so when Jesus says, don't commit adultery, what he's doing is not saying, he's, he's actually protecting something that's really precious. He's actually protecting something. It's not a, it's not a, a closing down of your rights. He's saying, look, this, this, this is really precious. 
Sex is really precious. The context of sex is really precious. And it's just not true that, that, that sin doesn't have impacts. It's just not true that marital unfaithfulness has no impacts. It, it does. It had huge impacts. You, know, you just have to work in a, in a secondary school, the number of kids who are separated. And that's not pointing the finger at any of you. I'm just saying it has impacts. It's not just the choice isn't impact-free. And it's the same with lots of other stuff. The choice isn't just impact-free. But when you're involved in, in, in secret sin, and when you're involved in stuff that you don't want anyone to know, the worst thing you think is you're going to be found out. You don't think the sin you're doing is the worst thing. What happens is you get trapped in a situation and think, if I got found out, that's going to be terrible. There was this um, scandal uh, uh, called Ashley Madison. I don't know if anybody, you're probably not going to say I've heard of it, but you might have heard of the scandal. What happened in 2015, this website, Ashley Madison, registered trademark, life is short, have an affair, they got hacked. Did anyone hear about that? They got hacked. And and they started to put people's names on the internet saying, we're going to put people's names unless you pay money. What started to happen, it just snowballed. In the States, in the UK, it snowballed. Names were going out there. People's names were going out there. Men were committing suicide. 400 pastors' names are on that list. There's a lot of names on that list. And I'm not saying all of those pastors had affairs, but they signed up with the, I'm going to have an affair. And obviously what happened is when, when that broke, the worst thing they thought is, I'm going to be found out. This is the worst thing that could possibly happen for me to be found out. That's why you get cover-ups, don't you? That's why you get films about cover-ups, about sexual stuff. That's why you get films where covers up, church cover-ups. Because the worst thing that can happen is to be found out. Well, actually, the worst thing that happened is actually doing the stuff. But what happens is the religious leaders bring this woman and think, right, okay, and she's probably thinking, this is the worst thing that could happen, being found out and brought to the feet of Jesus. But the religious leaders did what, what, the, what the law is supposed to do. They didn't even realise it, but the law is supposed to bring us to Jesus. Galatians 3.24 says, the law has become our schoolmaster. I think it's like this harsh kind of cane-bending schoolmaster that we had when we were kids instead of you guys. of like, oh no, sorry, we won't smack your bottoms. Uh, to bring us to Christ. The law, when, you don't, when you've broken God's law, you, you feel bad, but that you naturally want to say, I'm just going to hide. But actually, the absolute opposite should be the, the thing. You should say, right, I'm going to go to Jesus. But we don't. We think, I'm going to duck church. I'm not going to go to my group. I'm hiding in my three. Well, you know, we just, getting found out is the worst. But no, we should be brought to Jesus. She thinks being before God is the most dangerous place to be. But actually, it's the most life-giving place to be. You think, oh, I remember there's a book, uh, Philip Yancey, American author, wrote a book called uh, What's So Amazing About Grace. And he writes a story about a lady who's involved in, I mean, she's been trafficked and it's just horrible what, what goes on. And, and, and he, Philip Yancey speaks to her and says, why would you, come, would you want to come, to come to church? And she says, why would I want to go there? That's the most finger-pointing, condemning place I could possibly go. But 
actually the truth is if you come to the place of Jesus, it's the most life-giving place to be. When we're most guilty and most messed up, Jesus is the person we're supposed to go to. But So what is Jesus going to do? He's surrounded. Let's bring Jesus into the story. What's Jesus going to do? He's surrounded by these, these uh, people holding stones. He's surrounded by these stone throwers, this angry mob and this woman's there and they're all ready. And they all feel they've got every right to throw at that woman. They've got every right to throw the stone at the woman. And, they, and they're saying, come on Jesus, are you, are you all for this? Are you all for this? What do you say, Jesus? How could justice and grace prevail? How can you have both? How can I have God be concerned about right and wrong and, and forgive us at the same time? They seem like you can't have both. Either justice is going to happen, boom, or forgiveness is going to happen, but what about that? Jesus says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. That doesn't put the woman in a safe place. What's he going to do? It's his nature as God to, to condemn, condemn wrongdoing. And we're not just talking about adultery. It's God's nature to say, I care about injustice and wrongdoing. There's a quote I read to you a year ago. I just love it. I'm going to read it again. It's from a, a woman called Fleming Routledge. Uh, and she said this. In our day, we flee from the idea of the justice of God. Who thinks the justice of God is a good idea? You can't, you can't, yeah, you know, is it a good idea or not? Well, yes, but no, but yes, but no, but. Yes, in our haste, we might ask whether we thought of the consequences of a belief in God who's not set against evil in all its forms. Oh, I like that kind of God, you. He's against evil. I like that kind of God. If God were not outraged at evil in all its forms, such an indignant God would be an accomplice to injustice, deception, and violence. So we like that part of God's justice. You look at the world and you think, look at the injustice. Who's going to put it right? God's going to put it right. God is bothered about it and he's going to put it right. But what we don't like, and she goes on, perhaps the reason we're troubled with the thoughts of justice of God is that we are ourselves accomplices in this world of evil and injustice. If you've never done nothing wrong, you're good. But we all think, I don't like the justice of God because, man, I've done something wrong. But Jesus, so he, Jesus is concerned about justice, but he's also concerned about grace. Famous verse that they hold up at, at sporting events, don't they? John 3, 16. This is how much God loved the world, that he gave his one and only son that who believes in him should not be destroyed, but have eternal life. What's it going to say? It's up there. For God did not send his son into the world to, say it, condemn, condemn the world, but to save it. The reason Jesus had come to the earth is not to point the finger, but to save you. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? I, I love this little bit, and I read it in a book, um, so I never thought of it, so don't think, whoa, that's clever. <laughs> Most of the things I've read in a book. So this book was called, a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by a guy called Ken Bailey. And he says this. We all wonder, what is Jesus doing? Everyone speculates. What was he writing? Bad girl. You know, what's he writing? I love you. What's he writing in the sand? He, he, he stoops down and writes in the sand. Here's the thing that you'd never really spot unless some clever guy told you. This, this day was a special Sabbath. What's the thing about the Sabbath you're not supposed to do? Work. work. You can't work on the Sabbath. 
This is a special Sabbath, so it's not a Sabbath, it's like a special Sabbath, it's like a holy day, holiday. It's a special Sabbath, and you're not allowed to work. Now, just to get, see how silly the rules have become about working, the, the kind of writing you were allowed to do on a, on a Sabbath was you could write, but it couldn't be permanent. Okay? Because if it was permanent, it was work. But if it wasn't permanent, it wasn't work. Does that seem like a dumb rule? These are Pharisees that added silly rules onto God saying, just rest on a Sunday or rest on a Saturday. Rest. And they'd added all these dumb rules. Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand. It's like this temporary writing. I think Philip, uh, uh, Ken Bailey says this. He says, he's demonstrating, I know the laws. I know the laws. And not one law is going to be broken today. So what does Jesus do? He's saying, I'm not going to break a law today. But then he flips it over and you always think, Jesus, you're so clever. If anyone is without sin, let them cast the first stone. I mean, you think it's obvious, isn't it? But for Jesus, because he understands what we're like, it's profound. Is anyone here, you love the law, you lot. Is anyone here guiltless before the law? Come on, you're all dressed in your religious clothes and your Sunday best and you've all brushed yourself up for, for, for church on Sunday. Or you, you know, Surely there must be somebody in God first who's never sinned. Is anyone here guiltless before the law? And in its, is anyone here qualified to judge on this matter? Because if you've never done anything wrong, you can judge in this matter. I know what we tend to do is say, oh, adultery, that's a big deal. But my pride and insecurity and self-pity, that's not really a bad thing, is it? So I've got my pride and insecurity and self-pity, and I can point my finger and throw the stone at that bad person. That sort of atmosphere is toxic in churches, isn't it? It's destructive, it's horrible, it smells. We do it all the time. Is anyone here qualified to judge in this matter? Suddenly the jury is in the dock. They're trying to trap him, and he exposes their hearts. I can just imagine the woman, she's standing there, and she probably thinks, they're all really righteous, these people. They never swear on the golf course. They're always, you know, they're, they're really righteous. I've got no chance. They've never done anything like I've done. And she's probably expecting the stones to come in, waiting for the first one. Because it's only one person to say they're righteous and the rest could fall. They didn't say, just one, just one, just one righteous person. In come the stone, first stone. And she's probably waiting, and she's waiting, and she's waiting. It's probably tears streaming down her face, and she's waiting. And she hears the first stone kind of drop to the ground. And she thinks, well, maybe they did they throw and miss? And then suddenly, stone after stone after stone after stone starts to hit the ground, and she realizes they're putting down their stones. John says, those who began to go away at one at a time, the oldest one first, Paul hunting, thought, if you really knew me, <laughs> you know? It's the young ones who think they did nothing wrong and they've got to live forever. As you get older, you think, man, I need Jesus. You know, I realize the older I've got, I don't need him less. I need him more. So I've got a whole history. So you set down your stones. All the religious types, all the religious types, the finger-pointing religious types, all their good works, 
they suddenly evaluated them in that moment. I thought I was rich with all these good works. But when I evaluate it, it's nothing. The law, the very law that they trusted stood against them. If you want to be a legalist, you better be perfect. You better be perfect. If you want to go around this church and point fingers at people, you better be perfect. There's only one perfect one in this church. And he's not visible here today. <laughs> well, you thought he was going to say, no, there's only one perfect one. They, the written law that they trusted stood against them. Trusting in the law neither brought them perfection. Let's just say that. We'll pick that up again in the series. Trusting in the law didn't bring them perfection. It says in Corinthians, if a law had been written that could impart righteousness, then righteousness would have come through the law. Think about that. If a law had been written that could make people do what's right, then that would work, wouldn't it? If you're a parent, you know that that doesn't work, don't you? You know if you're an adult, that doesn't work. If there's a law, if somebody said, Howard, now, what's going to happen? You're going to become a powerful man of three hours intercessory prayer every day. I'm sorry. If a law could just say that and then, bing, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Could just go around and, and you just the law would change. But it's the, the law cannot bring perfection. But the thing about the law is it's got to bring you to the perfect one, as I said before, but it didn't bring them to the perfect one. So we find this woman, she's on the, as it were, alone at the feet of Jesus, or standing before Jesus. And there's only one person still left. There's only one person who's qualified uh, to, to judge her. He's the judge of all the earth. Jesus is the judge of all the earth and he's the only one there who could have thrown the stone. She's got nothing to say in her defence. It says in Romans that when we stand before God at the end of time, we'll have nothing to say. Do you know what people say? Well, I see God, I'm going to ask him a few questions. I've got a few things I need to work through with him about that happened in my life. When you stand before God, never mind the Queen, you stand before God, you've got nothing to say. Nothing to say. You have got nothing to say. In your defence. If Jesus is the God of the harsh, finger-pointing, self-righteous, religious types, then she's got no chance. She's got no hope. But while she stands before Jesus, there is hope. We loved, I love that song that says, Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. She's got hope when she stands before Jesus. She, like us, is facing the sentence of death. Paul says in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that is death. You might think, oh, the Jewish law is a little bit harsh, we've got to stone that woman. But it's a picture of reality. All sin will lead to death. Eternal death. But Jesus says something amazing. Has no one condemned you? then neither do I condemn you. I mean, that is just brilliant. Just hear that, people. Whatever you've done, whatever you are, if you come to the feet of Jesus, he says, I don't condemn you. 
I don't condemn. It's incredibly powerful, isn't it? Now, it's, it's, just think about it. He, see, he speaks to this woman, and what happens is, what if she goes away, and then three weeks later, they bring her back and say, she's at it again. What does that make God look, Jesus look like? What, what if, what if she, he says to her, I don't condemn you, and then she stands before him in eternity and he says, well, actually, lady, I was in a kind of tight spot then. I am now going to condemn you. He's not going to speak, I don't condemn you now and speak it in eternity. But yet if he speaks, I don't condemn you and she comes back again, what goes on? Jesus says this, doesn't he? No, we're just, I'm jumping ahead. Just let me say this. Jesus knows that there is going to be a death for this. There is going to be a death. You know the story. Oh, I know the story. There's no tension in this story for me, but there is. There was going to be a death. And we know whose death it was going to be. There was going to be someone who's going to feel the thud, not of stones, but of whips, and, a, and, and they beat, them, beat him with their rods about the head and have a crown of thorn pushed into his, uh, his hands and was going to feel nails pushed into his hands. He was going to feel his, his body and his bones dislocated. He was going to be bruised. Isaiah says it, doesn't he? Isaiah has it. says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. That he is Jesus, that our is you. He was pierced for Howard's transgressions. He was crushed for Howard's iniquity. Put your name there. The punishment that brought me peace, Howard, was, was on him. By his wounds, I'm healed. I, like a stupid sheep, have gone astray and turned to my own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the sins of us all. There was going to be a life laid down. And it was going to be his. The Lord demanded a life. And a life would be given. The law was not compromised. Jesus fulfilled the law. Let's finish with this. Jesus says to her, I do not condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Imagine how that woman had felt. Imagine if you'd been brought in that situation before Jesus and you knew that you were moments from death. And people did get stoned for that did get rocks thrown at them, did die for that. It did happen. And imagine you were brought there and suddenly you received amazing grace, unmerited forgiveness and love from God. When you went away, it's inconceivable that you'd do it again, isn't it? It's inconceivable that you do it again. Because there's something about Jesus, he's not just letting her off, but grace, and we'll, we'll, we'll pick this up later in the series, grace has power to transform. When you hear over your life, I do not condemn you. Or as Paul puts it in Romans, there is no condemnation for those that are one with Christ. When you hear that over you, that is incredibly transforming. 
Go and live your life of sins, not just crossing his fingers. It's the power of the cross that meant she'd be different. I find for me, the saddest thing is, is not when I sinned, and that's sad, and that's destructive, and that brings you to your knees, but the saddest thing is when you felt the love and forgiveness of God, you go out as if it didn't matter. As if it's just life and death. And then the grace of God has been without effect. It says in Proverbs, doesn't it, as a fool returns to his sin or his folly, it's like a dog going back to his vomit. You think, ugh. For this woman to go back and do it again was like a, I'm going to go back and eat my vomit. You think, what a filthy thought. That's what Paul says. He said, should we sin? So that God has to forgive us again and again and again? He says, no, what a horrible thought. The grace of God, and we're finished here, the grace of God when truly understood, truly transforms. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.